Chapters 37 and 38 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leon Meyer. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 37 Oriental Religions in the West. The worship of the great mother of the gods, and her lover or son, was very popular under the Roman Empire. Inscriptions prove that the two received divine honors, separately or conjointly, not only in Italy, and especially at Rome, but also in the provinces, particularly in Africa, Spain, Portugal, France, Germany, and Bulgaria. Their worship survived the establishment of Christianity by Constantine, for Symmachus records the recurrence of the festival of the Great Mother, and in the days of Augustine, her effeminate priests still paraded the streets and squares of Carthage with whitened faces, scented hair, and mincing gait, while, like the mendicant friars of the Middle Ages, they begged alms from the passers-by. In Greece, on the other hand, the bloody orgies of the Asiatic goddess and her consort appear to have found little favor, the barbarous and cruel character of the worship, with its frantic excesses, was doubtless repugnant to the good taste and humanity of the Greeks, who seemed to have preferred the kindred but gentler rites of Adonis. Yet the same features which shocked and repelled the Greeks may have positively attracted the less refined Romans and barbarians of the West. The ecstatic frenzies, which were mistaken for divine inspiration, the mangling of the body, the theory of a new birth, and the remission of sins through the shedding of blood, have all their origin in savagery, and they naturally appealed to people in whom the savage instincts were still strong. Their true character was indeed often disguised under a decent veil of allegorical or philosophical interpretation, which probably sufficed to impose upon the rapt and enthusiastic worshippers reconciling even the more cultivated of them to things which otherwise must have filled them with horror and disgust. The religion of the Great Mother, with its curious blending of crude savagery with spiritual aspirations, was only one of a multitude of similar oriental faiths which, in the later days of paganism, spread over the Roman Empire, and by saturating the European peoples with alien ideals of life, gradually undermined the whole fabric of ancient civilization. Greek and Roman society was built on the conception of the subordination of the individual to the community, of the citizen to the state. It set the safety of the commonwealth as the supreme aim of conduct, above the safety of the individual, whether in this world or in the world to come. Trained from infancy in this unselfish ideal, the citizens devoted their lives to the public service, and were ready to lay them down for the common good. Or, if they shrank from the supreme sacrifice, it never occurred to them that they acted otherwise than basely in preferring their personal existence to the interests of their country. All this was changed by the spread of Oriental religions, which inculcated the communion of the soul with God, and its eternal salvation, as the only objects worth living for, objects in comparison with which the prosperity and even the existence of the state sank into insignificance. The inevitable result of this selfish and immoral doctrine was to withdraw the devotee more and more from the public service, to concentrate his thoughts on his own spiritual emotions, 
and to breed in him a contempt for the present life, which he regarded merely as a probation for a better and an eternal. The saint and the recluse, disdainful of earth, and wrapped in ecstatic contemplation of heaven, became, in popular opinion, the highest ideal of humanity, displacing the old ideal of the patriot and hero, who, forgetful of self, lives and is ready to die for the good of his country. The earthly city seemed poor and contemptible to men whose eyes beheld the city of God coming in the clouds of heaven. Thus the center of gravity, so to say, was shifted from the present to a future life, and however much the other world may have gained, there can be little doubt that this one lost heavily by the change. A general disintegration of the body politic set in. The ties of the state and the family were loosened. The structure of society tended to resolve itself into its individual elements, and thereby to relapse into barbarism. For civilization is only possible through the active cooperation of the citizens, and their willingness to subordinate their private interests to the common good. Men refused to defend their country, and even to continue their kind. In their anxiety to save their own souls and the souls of others, they were content to leave the material world, which they identified with the principle of evil, to perish around them. This obsession lasted for a thousand years. The revival of Roman law, of the Aristotelian philosophy, of ancient art and literature at the close of the Middle Ages, marked the return of Europe to the native ideals of life and conduct, to saner, manlier views of the world. The long halt in the march of civilization was over. The tide of oriental invasion had turned at last. It is ebbing still. Among the gods of eastern origin, who, in the decline of the ancient world, competed against each other for the allegiance of the west, was the old Persian deity Mithra. The immense popularity of his worship is attested by the monuments illustrative of it, which have been found scattered in profusion all over the Roman Empire. In respect both of doctrines and of rites, the cult of Mithra appears to have presented many points of resemblance not only to the religion of the mother of the gods, but also to Christianity. The similarity struck the Christian doctors themselves, and was explained by them as a work of the devil, who sought to seduce the souls of men from the true faith by a false and insidious imitation of it. So to the Spanish conquerors of Mexico and Peru, many of the native heathen rites appeared to be diabolical counterfeits of the Christian sacraments. With more probability, the modern student of comparative religion traces such resemblances to the similar and independent workings of the mind of man in his sincere, if crude, attempts to fathom the secret of the universe, and to adjust his little life to its awful mysteries. However that may be, there can be no doubt that the Mithraic religion proved a formidable rival to Christianity, combining as it did a solemn ritual with aspirations after moral purity and a hope of immortality. Indeed, the issue of the conflict between the two faiths appears for a time to have hung in the balance. An instructive relic of the long struggle is preserved in our festival of Christmas, which the Church seems to have borrowed directly from its heathen rival. In the Julian calendar, the 25th of December was reckoned the winter solstice, and it was regarded as the nativity of the sun, because the day begins to lengthen, and the power of the sun to increase from that turning point of the year. The ritual of the nativity, as it appears to have been celebrated in Syria and Egypt, was remarkable. 
the celebrants retired into certain inner shrines from which at midnight they issued with a loud cry the virgin has brought forth the light is waxing the egyptians even represented the newborn son by the image of an infant which on his birthday the winter solstice they brought forth and exhibited to his worshippers no doubt the virgin who thus conceived and bore a son on the twenty-fifth of december was the great oriental goddess whom the semites called the heavenly virgin or simply the heavenly goddess in semitic lands she was a form of astarte now mithra was regularly identified by his worshippers with the sun the unconquered sun as they called him hence his nativity also fell on the twenty-fifth of december the gospels say nothing as to the day of christ's birth and accordingly the early church did not celebrate it in time however the christians of egypt came to regard the sixth of january as the date of the nativity and the custom of commemorating the birth of the saviour on that day gradually spread until by the fourth century it was universally established in the east but at the end of the third or the beginning of the fourth century the western church which had never recognized the sixth of january as the day of the nativity adopted the twenty-fifth of december as the true date and in time its decision was accepted also by the eastern church at antioch the change was not introduced till about the year three seventy five a d what considerations led the ecclesiastical authorities to institute the festival of christmas the motives for the innovation are stated with great frankness by a syrian writer himself a christian the reason he tells us why the fathers transferred the celebration of the sixth of january to the twenty fifth of december was this it was a custom of the heathen to celebrate on the same twenty fifth of december the birthday of the sun at which they kindled lights in token of festivity in these solemnities and festivities the christians also took part accordingly when the doctors of the church perceived that the christians had a leaning to this festival they took counsel and resolved that the true nativity should be solemnized on that day and the festival of the epiphany on the sixth of january accordingly along with this custom the practice has prevailed of kindling fires till the sixth the heathen origin of christmas is plainly hinted at if not tacitly admitted by augustine when he exhorts his christian brethren not to celebrate that solemn day like the heathen on account of the sun but on account of him who made the sun in like manner leo the great rebuked the pestilent belief that christmas was solemnized because of the birth of the new sun as it was called and not because of the nativity of christ thus it appears that the christian church chose to celebrate the birthday of its founder on the twenty-fifth of december in order to transfer the devotion of the heathen from the sun to him who was called the son of righteousness if that was so there can be no intrinsic improbability in the conjecture that motives of the same sort may have led the ecclesiastical authorities to assimilate the easter festival of the death and resurrection of their lord to the festival of the death and resurrection of another asiatic god which fell at the same season now the easter rites still observed in greece sicily and southern italy bear in some respects a striking resemblance to the rites of adonis and i have suggested that the church may have consciously adapted the new festival to its heathen predecessor for the sake of winning souls to christ 
but this adaptation probably took place in the Greek-speaking rather than in the Latin-speaking parts of the ancient world, for the worship of Adonis, while it flourished among the Greeks, appears to have made little impression on Rome and the West. Certainly it never formed part of the official Roman religion. The place which it might have taken in the affections of the vulgar was already occupied by the similar but more barbarous worship of Attis and the Great Mother. Now the death and resurrection of Attis were officially celebrated at Rome on the 24th and 25th of March, the latter being regarded as the spring equinox, and therefore as the most appropriate day for the revival of a god of vegetation who had been dead or sleeping throughout the winter. But according to an ancient and widespread tradition, Christ suffered on the 25th of March, and accordingly some Christians regularly celebrated the crucifixion on that day without any regard to the state of the moon. This custom was certainly observed in Phrygia, Cappadocia, and Gaul, and there seems to be ground for thinking that at one time it was followed also in Rome. Thus the tradition which placed the death of Christ on the 25th of March was ancient and deeply rooted. It is all the more remarkable because astronomical considerations prove that it can have had no historical foundation. The inference appears to be inevitable that the Passion of Christ must have been arbitrarily referred to that date in order to harmonize with an older festival of the spring equinox. This is the view of the learned ecclesiastical historian, Monseigneur Duchesne, who points out that the death of the Savior was thus made to fall upon the very day on which, according to a widespread belief, the world had been created. But the resurrection of Addis, who combined in himself the characters of the Divine Father and the Divine Son, was officially celebrated at Rome on the same day. When we remember that the festival of St. George in April has replaced the ancient pagan festival of Perilia, that the festival of St. John the Baptist in June has succeeded to a heathen midsummer festival of water, that the festival of the Assumption of the Virgin in August has ousted the festival of Diana, that the Feast of All Souls in November is a continuation of an old heathen feast of the dead, and that the Nativity of Christ himself was assigned to the winter solstice in December because that day was deemed the nativity of the sun, we can hardly be thought rash or unreasonable in conjecturing that the other cardinal festival of the Christian Church, the solemnization of Easter, may have been in like manner, and from like motives of edification, adapted to a similar celebration of the Phrygian god Attis at the vernal equinox. At least it is a remarkable coincidence, if it is nothing more, that the Christian and the heathen festivals of the divine death and resurrection should have been solemnized at the same season and in the same places. For the places which celebrated the death of Christ at the spring equinox were Phrygia, Gaul, and apparently Rome, that is, the very regions in which the worship of Attis either originated or struck deepest root. It is difficult to regard the coincidence as purely accidental. If the vernal equinox, the season at which, in the temperate regions, the whole face of nature testifies to a fresh outburst of vital energy, had been viewed from of old as the time when the world was annually created afresh in the resurrection of a god, nothing could be more natural than to place the resurrection of the new deity at the same cardinal point of the year. Only it is to be observed 
that if the death of Christ was dated on the 25th of March, his resurrection, according to Christian tradition, must have happened on the 27th of March, which is just two days later than the vernal equinox of the Julian calendar and the resurrection of Attis. A similar displacement of two days in the adjustment of Christian to heathen celebrations occurs in the festivals of St. George and the Assumption of the Virgin. However, another Christian tradition, followed by Lactantius, and perhaps by the practice of the church in Gaul, placed the death of Christ on the 23rd, and his resurrection on the 25th of March. If that was so, his resurrection coincided exactly with the resurrection of Attis. In point of fact, it appears from the testimony of an anonymous Christian, who wrote in the 4th century of our era, that Christians and pagans alike were struck by the remarkable coincidence between the death and resurrection of their respective deities, and that the coincidence formed a theme of bitter controversy between the adherents of the rival religions, the pagans contending that the resurrection of Christ was a spurious imitation of the resurrection of Attis, and the Christians asserting with equal warmth that the resurrection of Attis was a diabolical counterfeit of the resurrection of Christ. In these unseemly bickerings, the heathen took what to a superficial observer might seem strong ground by arguing that their god was the older, and therefore presumably the original, not the counterfeit, since as a general rule an original is older than its copy. This feeble argument the Christians easily rebutted. They admitted, indeed, that in point of time Christ was the junior deity, but they triumphantly declared his real seniority by falling back on the subtlety of Satan, who on so important an occasion had surpassed himself by inverting the usual order of nature. Taken altogether, the coincidences of the Christian with the heathen festivals are too close and too numerous to be accidental. They mark the compromise which the church, in the hour of its triumph, was compelled to make with its vanquished yet still dangerous rivals. The inflexible Protestantism of the primitive missionaries, with their fiery denunciations of heathendom, had been exchanged for the supple policy, the easy tolerance, the comprehensive charity of shrewd ecclesiastics, that if Christianity was to conquer the world, it could only do so by relaxing the two rigid principles of its founder, by widening a little the narrow gate which leads to salvation. In this respect, an instructive parallel might be drawn between the history of Christianity and the history of Buddhism. Both systems were, in their origin, essentially ethical reforms born of the generous ardor, the lofty aspirations, the tender compassion of their noble founders, two of those beautiful spirits who appear at rare intervals on earth, like beings come from a better world, to support and guide our weak and erring nature both preached moral virtue as the means of accomplishing what they regarded as the supreme object of life, the eternal salvation of the individual soul, though by a curious antithesis the one sought that salvation in a blissful eternity, the other in a final release from suffering and annihilation. But the austere ideals of sanctity which they inculcated were too deeply opposed not only to the frailties, but to the natural instincts of humanity, ever to be carried out in practice by more than a small number of disciples, who consistently renounced the ties of the family and the state in order to work out their own salvation in the still seclusion of the cloister. If such faiths, 
were to be nominally accepted by whole nations, or even by the world, it was essential that they should first be modified or transformed, so as to accord in some measure with the prejudices, the passions, the superstitions of the vulgar. This process of accommodation was carried out in after ages by followers who, made of less ethereal stuff than their masters, were, for that reason, the better fitted to mediate between them and the common herd. Thus, as time went on, the two religions, in exact proportion to their growing popularity, absorbed more and more of those baser elements which they had been instituted for the very purpose of suppressing. Such spiritual decadences are inevitable. The world cannot live at the level of its great men. Yet it would be unfair to the generality of our kind to ascribe wholly to their intellectual and moral weakness the gradual divergence of Buddhism and Christianity from their primitive patterns. For it should never be forgotten that, by their glorification of poverty and celibacy, both these religions struck straight at the root not merely of civil society, but of human existence. The blow was parried by the wisdom or the folly of the vast majority of mankind, who refused to purchase a chance of saving their souls with the certainty of extinguishing the species. Chapter 38 The Myth of Osiris In ancient Egypt, the god whose death and resurrection were annually celebrated, with alternate sorrow and joy, was Osiris, the most popular of all Egyptian deities and there are good grounds for classing him in one of his aspects with Adonis and Attis as a personification of the great yearly vicissitudes of nature, especially of the corn. But the immense vogue which he enjoyed for many ages induced his devoted worshippers to heap upon him the attributes and powers of many other gods, so that it is not always easy to strip him, so to say, of his borrowed plumes and to restore them to their proper owners. The story of Osiris is told in a connected form only by Plutarch, whose narrative has been confirmed, and to some extent amplified in modern times, by the evidence of the monuments. Osiris was the offspring of an intrigue between the earth-god Seb, Keb or Geb, as the name is sometimes transliterated, and the sky-goddess Newt. The Greeks identified his parents with their own deities, Cronus and Rhea. When the sun-god, Ra, perceived that his wife, Newt, had been unfaithful to him, he declared with a curse that she should be delivered of the child in no month and no year. But the goddess had another lover, the god Toth, or Hermes, as the Greeks called him, and he, playing at draughts with the moon, won from her a seventy-second part of every day, and, having compounded five whole days out of these parts, he added them to the Egyptian year of three hundred and sixty days. This was the mythical origin of the five supplementary days which the Egyptians annually inserted at the end of every year in order to establish harmony between lunar and solar time. On these five days, regarded as outside the year of twelve months, the curse of the sun-god did not rest, and accordingly Osiris was born on the first of them. At his nativity, a voice rang out, proclaiming that the Lord of all had come into the world. Some say that a certain Pamiles heard a voice from the temple at Thebes, 
bidding him announce with a shout that a great king, the beneficent Osiris, was born. But Osiris was not the only child of his mother. On the second of the supplementary days, she gave birth to the elder Horus, on the third to the god Set, whom the Greeks called Typhon, on the fourth to the goddess Isis, and on the fifth to the goddess Nephthys. Afterwards, Set married his sister Nephthys, and Osiris married his sister Isis. Reigning as a king on earth, Osiris reclaimed the Egyptians from savagery, gave them laws, and taught them to worship the gods. Before his time, the Egyptians had been cannibals. But Isis, the sister and wife of Osiris, discovered wheat and barley growing wild, and Osiris introduced the cultivation of these grains amongst his people, who forthwith abandoned cannibalism and took kindly to a corn diet. Moreover, Osiris is said to have been the first to gather fruit from trees, to train the vine to poles, and to tread the grapes. Eager to communicate these beneficent discoveries to all mankind, he committed the whole government of Egypt to his wife Isis, and traveled over the world, diffusing the blessings of civilization and agriculture wherever he went. In countries where a harsh climate or niggardly soil forbade the cultivation of the vine, he taught the inhabitants to console themselves for the want of vine by brewing beer from barley. Loaded with the wealth that had been showered upon him by grateful nations, he returned to Egypt, and on account of the benefits he had conferred on mankind, he was unanimously hailed and worshipped as a deity. But his brother Set, whom the Greeks called Typhon, with seventy-two others, plotted against him. Having taken the measure of his good brother's body by stealth, the bad brother Typhon fashioned and highly decorated a coffer of the same size, and once when they were all drinking and making merry, he brought in the coffer and jestingly promised to give it to the one whom it should fit exactly. Well, they all tried one after the other, but it fitted none of them. Last of all, Osiris stepped into it and lay down. On that the conspirators ran and slammed the lid down on him, nailed it fast, soldered it with molten lead, and flung the coffer into the Nile. This happened on the seventeenth day of the month Athur, when the sun is in the sign of the scorpion, and in the eight and twentieth year of the reign or the life of Osiris. When Isis heard of it, she sheared a lock of her hair, put on a mourning attire, and wandered disconsolately up and down, seeking the body. By the advice of the god of wisdom, she took refuge in the papyrus swamps of the delta. Seven scorpions accompanied her in her flight. One evening, when she was weary, she came to the house of a woman who, alarmed at the sight of the scorpions, shut the door in her face. Then one of the scorpions crept under the door and stung the child of the woman that he died. But when Isis heard the mother's lamentation, her heart was touched, and she laid her hands on the child and uttered her powerful spells. So the poison was driven out of the child, and he lived. Afterwards, Isis herself gave birth to a son in the swamps. She had conceived him while she fluttered in the form of a hawk over the corpse of her dead husband. The infant was the younger Horus, who in his youth bore the name of Harpocrates, that is, the child Horus. Him, Buto, the goddess of the north, hid from the wrath of his wicked uncle Set. Yet she could not guard him from all mishap, for one day when Isis came to her little son's hiding place, she found him stretched lifeless and rigid on the ground. A scorpion had stung him.
Then Isis prayed to the sun-god Ra for help. The god hearkened to her, and stayed his bark in the sky, and sent down Toth, to teach her the spell by which she might restore her son to life. She uttered the words of power, and straightway the poison flowed from the body of Horus, air passed into him, and he lived. Then Toth ascended up into the sky, and took his place once more in the bark of the sun, and the bright pomp passed onward jubilant. Meantime, the coffer containing the body of Osiris had floated down the river and away out to sea, till at last it drifted ashore at Byblus, on the coast of Syria. Here a fine erica tree shot up suddenly and enclosed the chest in its trunk. The king of the country, admiring the growth of the tree, had it cut down and made into a pillar of his house, but he did not know that the coffer with the dead Osiris was in it. Word of this came to Isis, and she journeyed to Byblus, and sat down by the well in humble guise, her face wet with tears. To none would she speak till the king's handmaidens came, and them she greeted kindly, and braided their hair, and breathed on them from her own divine body a wondrous perfume. But when the queen beheld the braids of her handmaidens' hair, and smelt the sweet smell that emanated from them, she sent for the stranger woman, and took her into her house, and made her the nurse of her child. But Isis gave the babe her finger instead of her breast to suck, and at night she began to burn all that was mortal of him away, while she herself, in the likeness of a swallow, fluttered round the pillar that contained her dead brother, twittering mournfully. But the queen spied what she was doing, and shrieked out when she saw her child in flames, and thereby she hindered him from becoming immortal. Then the goddess revealed herself, and begged for the pillar of the roof, and they gave it her, and she cut the coffer out of it, and fell upon it, and embraced it, and lamented so loud, that the younger of the king's children, that the younger of the king's children, died of fright on the spot. But the trunk of the tree she wrapped in fine linen, and poured ointment on it, and gave it to the king and queen. And the wood stands in a temple of Isis, and is worshipped by the people of Byblus to this day. And Isis put the coffer in a boat, and took the eldest of the king's children with her, and sailed away. As soon as they were alone, she opened the chest, and, laying her face on the face of her brother, she kissed him and wept. But the child came behind her softly, and saw what she was about, and she turned and looked at him in anger, and the child could not bear her look, and died. But some say that it was not so, but that he fell into the sea, and was drowned. It is he whom the Egyptians sing of at their banquets, under the name of Maneros. But Isis put the coffer by, and went to see her son Horus, at the city of Buto, and Typhon found the coffer, as he was hunting a boar one night by the light of a full moon. And he knew the body, and rent it into fourteen pieces, and scattered them abroad. But Isis sailed up and down the marshes in a shallop made of papyrus, looking for the pieces. And that is why, when people sail in shallops made of papyrus, the crocodiles do not hurt them, for they fear or respect the goddess. And that is the reason, too, why there are many graves of Osiris in Egypt, for she buried each limb as she found it. But others will have it that she buried an image of him in every city, pretending it was his body, in order that Osiris might be worshipped in many places, 
and that if Typhon searched for the real grave, he might not be able to find it. However, the genital member of Osiris had been eaten by the fishes, so Isis made an image of it instead, and the image is used by the Egyptians at their festivals to this day. Isis, writes the historian Diodorus Siculus, quote, recovered all the parts of the body except the genitals, and because she wished that her husband's grave should be unknown and honored by all who dwell in the land of Egypt, she resorted to the following device. She molded human images out of wax and spices, corresponding to the stature of Osiris, round each one of the parts of his body. Then she called in the priests, according to their families, and took an oath of them all, that they would reveal to no man the trust she was about to repose in them. So to each of them privately, she said that to them alone she entrusted the burial of the body, and, reminding them of the benefits they had received, she exhorted them to bury the body in their own land, and to honor Osiris as a god. She also besought them to dedicate one of the animals of their country, whichever they chose, and to honor it in life as they had formerly honored Osiris, and when it died, to grant it obsequies like his. And because she would encourage the priests, in their own interest, to bestow the aforesaid honors, she gave them a third part of the land to be used by them in the service and worship of the gods. Accordingly, it is said that the priests, mindful of the benefits of Osiris, desirous of gratifying the queen, and moved by the prospect of gain, carried out all the injunctions of Isis. Wherefore, to this day, each of the priests imagines that Osiris is buried in his country, and they honor the beasts that were consecrated in the beginning, and when the animals die, the priests renew at their burial the mourning for Osiris. But the sacred bulls, the one called Abis and the other Nevis, were dedicated to Osiris, and it was ordained that they should be worshipped as gods in common by all the Egyptians, since these animals, above all others, had helped the discoverers of corn in sowing the seed and procuring the universal benefits of agriculture. Unquote. Such is the myth or legend of Osiris, as told by Greek writers, and eked out by more or less fragmentary notices or allusions in native Egyptian literature. A long inscription in the temple at Denderah has preserved a list of the god's graves, and other texts mention the parts of his body which were treasured as holy relics in each of the sanctuaries. Thus his heart was at Athribus, his backbone at Bucyrus, his neck at Letopolis, and his head at Memphis. As often happens in such cases, some of his divine limbs were miraculously multiplied. His head, for example, was at Abydus as well as at Memphis, and his legs, which were remarkably numerous, would have sufficed for several ordinary mortals. In this respect, however, Osiris was nothing to St. Denis, of whom no less than seven heads, all equally genuine, are extant. According to native Egyptian accounts, which supplement that of Plutarch, when Isis had found the corpse of her husband Osiris, she and her sister Nephthys sat down beside it and uttered a lament which in after ages became the type of all Egyptian lamentations for the dead. Come to thy house, they wailed, come to thy house. O God on, come to thy house, thou who hast no foes. O fair youth, come to thy house, that thou mayest see me. I am thy sister, whom thou lovest. Thou shalt not part from me. 
O fair boy, come to thy house. I see thee not, yet doth my heart yearn after thee, and mine eyes desire thee. Come to her who loves thee, who loves thee, Unafer, thou blessed one. Come to thy sister, come to thy wife, to thy wife, thou whose heart stands still. Come to thy housewife. I am thy sister by the same mother. Thou shalt not be far from me. Gods and men have turned their faces towards thee, and weep for thee together. I call after thee and weep, so that my cry is heard to heaven, but thou hearest not my voice. Yet I am thy sister, whom thou didst love on earth. Thou didst love none but me, my brother, my brother. This lament for the fair youth cut off in his prime reminds us of the lament for Adonis, the title of Unafer, or the good being bestowed on him, marks the beneficence which tradition universally ascribed to Osiris. It was at once his commonest title and one of his names as king. The lamentations of the two sad sisters were not in vain. In pity for her sorrow, the sun-god Ra sent down from heaven the jackal-headed god Anubis, who, with the aid of Isis and Nephthys, of Toth and Horus, pieced together the broken body of the murdered god, swathed it in linen bandages, and observed all the other rites which the Egyptians were wont to perform over the bodies of the departed. Then Isis fanned the cold clay with her wings, Osiris revived, and thenceforth reigned as king over the dead in the other world. There he bore the titles of Lord of the Underworld, Lord of Eternity, Ruler of the Dead. There, too, in the great hall of the two truths, assisted by forty-two assessors, one from each of the principal districts of Egypt, he presided as judge at the trial of the souls of the departed, who made their solemn confession before him, and, their heart having been weighed in the balance of justice, received the reward of virtue in a life eternal, or the appropriate punishment of their sins. In the resurrection of Osiris, the Egyptians saw the pledge of a life everlasting for themselves, beyond the grave. They believed that every man would live eternally in the other world, if only his surviving friends did for his body what the gods had done for the body of Osiris. Hence the ceremonies observed by the Egyptians over the human dead were an exact copy of those which Anubis, Horus, and the rest had performed over the dead god. Quote, at every burial there was enacted a representation of the divine mystery which had been performed of old over Osiris, when his son, his sisters, his friends were gathered round his mangled remains, and succeeded, by their spells and manipulations, in converting his broken body into the first mummy, which they afterwards reanimated and furnished with the means of entering on a new individual life beyond the grave. The mummy of the deceased was Osiris, the professional female mourners were his two sisters, Isis and Nephthys. Anubis, Horus, all the gods of the Osirian legend gathered about the corpse. Unquote. In this way, every dead Egyptian was identified with Osiris and bore his name. From the Middle Kingdom onwards, it was the regular practice to address the deceased as Osiris so-and-so, as if he were the god himself, and to add the standing epithet, true of speech, because true speech was the characteristic of Osiris. 
the thousands of inscribed and pictured tombs that have been opened in the valley of the Nile prove that the mystery of the resurrection was performed for the benefit of every dead Egyptian. As Osiris died and rose again from the dead, so all men hoped to arise like him from death to life eternal. Thus, according to what seems to have been the general native tradition, Osiris was a good and beloved king of Egypt, who suffered a violent death, but rose from the dead and was henceforth worshipped as a deity. In harmony with this tradition, he was regularly represented by sculptors and painters in human and regal form as a dead king, swathed in the wrappings of a mummy, but wearing on his head a kingly crown, and grasping in one of his hands, which were left free from the bandages, a kingly scepter. Two cities, above all others, were associated with his myth or memory. One of them was Bucyrus in Lower Egypt, which claimed to possess his backbone, the other was Abydus in Upper Egypt, which gloried in the possession of his head. Encircled by the nimbus of the dead yet living god, Abydus, originally an obscure place, became from the end of the old kingdom the holiest spot in Egypt. His tomb there would seem to have been to the Egyptians what the church of the Holy Sepulchre at Jerusalem is to Christians. It was the wish of every pious man that his dead body should rest in hallowed earth near the grave of the glorified Osiris. Few indeed were rich enough to enjoy this inestimable privilege, for, apart from the cost of a tomb in the sacred city, the mere transport of mummies from great distances was both difficult and expensive. Yet so eager were many to absorb in death the blessed influence which radiated from the holy sepulchre that they caused their surviving friends to convey their mortal remains to Abydus, there to tarry for a short time, and then to be brought back by river and interred in the tombs which had been made ready for them in their native land. Others had cenotaphs built or memorial tablets erected for themselves near the tomb of their dead and risen lord, that they might share with him the bliss of a joyful resurrection. End of chapters 37 and 38